Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. Let's move forward. So after the bracha about the bad guys, then we have the bracha, uh, the bracha that says tear down the bad guys. Then we have the bracha that says build up and support the good guys. So that's Allah Tzadikim, page 114 in the Sim Shalom, page 40 in the Slim, at the top of the page, either one. Okay? So sort of as a mirror image or a counterpart of we asked Hashem to please destroy the wicked people and wickedness. In this bracha, we're saying, Hashem, please um, uh, support the good guys. Al Hatsadikim Val Hasidim for the uh concerning the righteous ones and Israel and the elders of Israel. Al Platat Sofrehem, the remnant of their um scribes, which is interesting, makes it sound like the very few, the very few good scribes, the Al Gerehatzedek and the righteous converts. So for all these categories of people, ve'aleinu, and then of course we want to lump ourselves in with all of the good guys. May your uh, compassion be stirred or awakened, Hashem. So if we said that in English order, we'd say, God, may your compassion be stirred up on behalf of the righteous, the pious, the elders, the scribes, the righteous converts. Okay, so we're clearly talking about categories of people who um, are described as not the regular day-to-day folk, but people who are somehow in a more righteous, pious category than us everyday folk. Although in the end, we we lump ourselves in. The Aleinu. Right. We're saying, God, we want you to have compassion for them. Us too. OK. And give a good recompense in modern Israeli Sahar is salary. Uh, well, Maskara is salary. I guess Sahar is reward. So give a good reward to all those who faithfully trust in your name. Why, why do you think we're asking God to give them a good reward? Do we, do we ask God to give the orthopedic surgeons a good reward? No, we assume they get reward. Okay, right? So these are people who are especially pious and righteous and may not be recognized for their piety and righteousness and may not be fully rewarded. They're, they're, they're not high salary folks. So we're saying, Hashem, these people who fully devote themselves to you, right? They're not the investment bankers. They're not the big business people. Who They're the people who are pious and righteous, devote themselves to you, and don't necessarily get rewarded. You can insert in parentheses if you want. In this world, they don't necessarily get the recognition they get. Hashem make sure that they get a faithful reward from you. So we're talking about categories of people who are not necessarily, certainly not the rich and powerful 
and not necessarily the people who get recognition. Hashem, make sure you reward them. Visim chalkenu imahem la'olam, and put our portion among them forever, right? We want to be included among them. We want to be counted among those righteous, pious people who are fully devoted to you. And then we will never despair because we trust in you. So we're saying, Hashem, you are the support and uh, stronghold or something like that, security for the righteous. So we seem to be suggesting in this bracha, there's a category of people called, we'll just call it tzadikim, because the bracha is called ala tzadikim. And you remember in rabbinic literature, all these brachot have a name by which they're referred to shorthand. So in Brikat ala tzadikim, we're mentioning all kinds of people who are extraordinarily righteous, pious, and devoted to God, more so than we necessarily think of the ordinary rank and file, okay? And we're saying, Hashem, please make sure they have good reward, okay? And we want to be counted among their midst, right? Oh, when the saints go marching in, Lord, I want to be in that number, right? That's what that song is about, right? The saints are going to heaven. We want to make sure we are in that group, that's what I think that's what that song means. Okay. Um, and it's the same idea. Hashem, even though I'm a regular schmo, um, the Jew in the pew, right? I can't claim to be a tzaddik or a chassid or a righteous person. I hope you count us, me, us, among all those people who are exceptionally admirable because they devote themselves to you in a way that is um, um, exceptional, exceptional and not the typical. And they don't always get the reward recompense that they deserve. And please make sure that they get their reward. And oh, by the way, I wanna, uh, oh Lord, I wanna be in that number when the saints come marching in. I think that's basically what it says, right? So just as we said last week, we insert our own prayers in all of these brachot. So, you know, just sort of personally, you know, on days when I'm thinking about it, which is not every day, but, you know, I'm thinking about the bad guys and I have my own list of bad guys, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, evil politicians or terrorists or, you know, something like that. The good guys, I don't know, can be whoever you're thinking of. So uh, some days I'm thinking of the teachers and the social workers who don't make a lot of money. And some days I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know, here's my politics, sorry, warning, warning, trigger warning, political disclosure. My friend, Rabbi Arik Asherman, who's a, a rabbi in Israel who goes out with the Bedouin shepherds on the West Bank to try to protect them when they're getting beaten up by um, Israeli settlers who are trying to drive them off their land, end of politics. Right. So I think of people who devote themselves extraordinarily to righteousness, because that's what the bracha is about. Hashem, we admire them. By the way, notice psychologically, this has the effect of getting us to think about people who we wouldn't think about. 
Okay. Um, it's in the morning. So I'm thinking about my job and going out into the world and all that stuff and how will I pay my bills. And this bracha says, you know what? Stop and think for a moment about the extraordinarily righteous people who devote themselves to godliness in ways that I, ordinary folk person, might not do. Hashem, protect and support and reward them. And you know what? And I hope you, Hashem, consider me among them. Okay, it's aspirational. So it's both raises consciousness to think about categories of people, and it's also aspirational. Because, of course, if I'm saying I admire them and I want to be counted among them, implied in that is, and how can I be more like them? Okay, all right, I'm going to pause. Thoughts, questions, comments? So I think this is an interesting counterpoint to the Misha Beirach that we say after Torah reading the prayer for the welfare of the congregation. The one we say on Shabbat, right. On Shabbat, yes. All the, all the people who provide for things for the congregation. Yep, go ahead, Joanna. Right. And there's a line now that like, so I've always like wondered about this line because there's a line in there that says, you know, and, you know, amongst the people we want to bless are those who open the Vatekinesio, you know, to allow us to come and pray. Okay, so those who are in some way working for them. Great. But then there's a, the following phrase is, and I would insert here like an even, and even just those of us who come to pray, right? So it's putting all of us into the mix. Because if you happen to be standing there in the moment, you're someone who maybe just showed up to pray that day. And all of a sudden that phrase to me is there because like, hopefully maybe in the way that you're speaking now, a little bit of a plug, like, okay, if you're one of the ones who just came to pray today, maybe you too can aspire to do some of these other um, you know, things that really help the community and show your service and devotion to God. Provide the wine and the Havdalah candle. And Pat, yeah, right. In that and, and taking care of those um, who are in need and providing staka. I mean, there's a whole litany of things in that. Right. Good. So actually, I'm going to say, react to what you said, um, a similarity and a difference. I'll start with the difference. So the difference is this bracha is about individuals who are extraordinarily pious and devoted to God. The Misha Beirach for Shabbat morning that you're talking about, um, uh, it, which we say right after Yakum Purkan, right after the Haftarah, is um, a, a somewhat different category of good people, admir admirable people. It's um, people who provide for the needs of the public, right? They actually provide for the needs, right? People who provide for the poor and the needy and contribute to the synagogue. So that's the difference. So somewhat different category of people. The similarity is, as you say, that by, by saying, by, by listing those people, talking about that category of people, it is inherently, not only inherently, it's actually explicitly aspirational, meaning, and I want to be part of them too. So the similarity is it's not saying, wow, I'll, I'm just regular guy. Uh, I don't contribute to the synagogue. Bless the people who provide all that, the people who make the contributions and work on the board and sit on the committees, right? It's saying, bless those people. Uh, and I want to, I should, uh, implied, of course, it doesn't say should. There's no Hebrew word in either of these brachot that translates as the English word 
should, but implied in that, I think, is, and I should be among them. I aspire to be among them. So we're talking about the righteous, and we're saying it in a way that I, th- I think is meant to go to us and inspire us and push us to be among them. So in that regard, Joanne, I think your comment is right on target, right? So I think it's a slightly different category of good people, right, to focus on, uh, because, of course, I can't say, and I, sh- I would like to be a convert, right, because I'm, I'm born Jewish, so I can't be a Jew by choice. So I can't exactly aspire to be that person, right? But I can aspire to be righteous like that person. Right. And I mean, the, the parallel there that both of them ask for scharam, for the, the for sachar. Right. Give them sachar, because they don't, what they do doesn't necessarily get obvious recompense. Make sure they get their, their just reward. Yes. Good. Great. Other thoughts about this bracha? Okay. You don't have to you don't have to say anything profound, but I'll pause for a moment because then we're going to go on. So we said, tear down the, the bad guys and wickedness, build up the good guys who do extraordinary righteousness. And then we have two brachot about um, uh, aspirations for, Jew, we would call it Jewish, natu- Jewish national restoration. These two brachot were originally one bracha, that's how 18 got to be 19. I'll come back to that point. Okay. Um, so, Velir Shalayim, your city, Jerusalem, uh, return to it mercifully and dwell in it, as you said, Kasher Barta. Where did God say that? That God will come back to dwell in Jerusalem? All over the prophets, right? I will come back to Jerusalem. There will be restoration in the future. The prophets all basically have the same message. There will be great destruction soon, but there will be restoration, greater restoration after that. Okay? So it's talking about the restoration. Uvneo um, uh, Speedily, uh, well, soon in our day, rebuild it um, a permanent building, eternal building, meaning Jerusalem, which has been destroyed at least twice, right? Rebuild it in a, in a permanent sort of way. David And establish the Davidic throne in it, right? So just sort of classic themes that we're familiar with from the prophets, even if you don't study the, prophet, the prophets, you've listened to enough Haftorahs and Shul, right, to know that this is what many of them are about, restoration of Davidic kingship in uh, rebuilt Jerusalem, Baruch HaTashem Boneh Yerushalayim, right, blessed are you God, who rebuilds, who built, it builds Jerusalem, but the implication is rebuilds Jerusalem. Um, and then, so that's about Jerusalem, although it does mention the Davidic throne, right, you might say, why is that there? It's about rebuilding Jerusalem. And then we have more about the Davidic throne. At Tzemach David Tzemiach, Tzemach is one of the words that's used in the prophets to describe the future Davidic royal lineage. And a Tzemach means like a sprout, a growth, right? And there are various uh, images from nature, like um, uh, in in Yeshayahu, Isaiah, there's like a tree that gets cut down, but then eventually a little tendril comes up 
out of the uh, stump. We've all seen that, right? So that's an, Im- that's an image from nature about future Davidic kingship, right? It's destroyed, right? But eventually it'll regrow. So that's what the tzemach is. So that's what the growth is. So the growth of your servant David, which means a Davidic royal lineage, okay, monarchy, um, cause it speedily to regrow. Vikarno tarumbi which literally means and raise his horn up with your saving. Raising the horn is a biblical image of victory. Did this mean because they blew the shofar when they won a battle or something like that? But the horn is seen, which it means animal horn, right? Um, is seen as an image of victory, sort of a classic biblical um, word. So raise their horn up means give them victory. Because we are waiting every single day, literally uh, in our Hebrew, it means all day long. Uh, In this context, I think it means every day. Every day we are waiting, Hashem, for your salvation. Right now, how is this different than the blessing of Geula, redemption, which we talked about earlier? You could say, well, the, that's a little bit blurred. Okay, I'll just let the question hang for the moment. Baruch um, Hashem, Matzmiach Karen Yeshua, who um, causes to grow the horn of salvation, saving, and again, salvation really means physical saving. Okay, rescue. Right, so these two brachot we're talking about again classic biblical themes that then get carried forward, prophetic themes that then carried, get carried forward into the mainstream of Judaism, which is that we're praying for the restoration of Jerusalem eternally, and we're praying for restoration of the Davidic monarchy. You personally may or may or may not believe in that, but that's kind of the classical formulation. So. You might have something else you might be thinking of. You might be thinking of good cabinet ministers, a good, uh, what's the word? When they, a coalition, a good governing coalition, okay? Um, so you might have, have uh, you know, um, uh, uh, a Senate that functions, okay? As opposed to a Senate that can't function. So you certainly might have in your own mind other images of what, you know, restoration of, future salvation, protection, good government, etc. Um, means. But that that's the, you know, classically that's what it's about. It's about Jerusalem and Davidic monarchy. And these are seen as the hallmarks of national restoration. So just to take a step back, hold on a second, Jeff, and I'll get to you. Just to take a step back, if we look at this series, we won't look at we won't talk about Shomeat Filah today, which is pretty straightforward. It's just kind of the summary, but we'll talk about it next week. We, we had a series of, after the ones that we labeled more personal blessings, healing, wisdom, right? We have a series of six, I'm going to call them national blessings, starting with on the previous page, right? So the six are ingathering of the exiles, restoration of just magistrates, justice, Tear down the wicked and the apostates and the sectarians. 
support the unusually righteous, rebuild Jerusalem, uh, reestablish Davidic king kingship. Okay, so these are a series of six brachot um, that clearly hang together, and we could call them brachot about national restoration. And of course, you can make a story of the order. You know, first the first the exiles are in gathered, and and then they have to appoint magistrates. And then there might still be some bad guys. We hope they go away. And then we hope the real good guys really are, are, are elevated, promoted, and admired. And then is rebuilding in Jerusalem, and then is Davidic kingship. So I guess it, it functions something like that, meaning the order is not random, okay? And it probably wouldn't make sense if you mentioned Davidic kingship before you mentioned in Gathering of the Exiles or before the Shoftim. But I don't think you have to, you know, I don't, I don't think the order is, I think the order is reasonably logical and not necessarily super crucial. But that's this series of six brachot and how they hang together. Jeff G. So that, that summary was very helpful to me because I was going to ask about how these things fit together. But, but I do have a question specifically about is there, and I don't remember, is there a relationship between, uh, you know, David, the Davidic kingdom, and the Messiah? Was Messiah supposed to come? What's the, is there a relationship? Yes, yes. the Messiah is a Davidic king. The, right, in classical, starting with, right, so Messiah literally means the anointed one, right, because kings were anointed with holy oil, okay, by a Kohen. So originally Mashiach doesn't mean the Messiah. It just means the an anointed person, which means the anointed person, which means the, the anointed king. So it comes to be an epithet of the king. Okay. And the prophets say, eventually after this terrible destruction, that's going to come, there will be a restoration of Davidic kingship and Hashem will appoint an anointed one, which means a righteous Davidic king, a righteous king from the lineage of David. And then somewhere between second Isaiah and Jesus. So we'll just say somewhere between 550 BCE and zero, there's a somehow evolution from, there's going to be a future Davidic king. He will be the Mashiach, the anointed one, of God, meaning the, the true king, right? It then becomes the Messiah, the way you're thinking of it. In Christianity and in Judaism, it's clear at a certain point that that restoration of Davidic kingship will be very far off in the future. So that's how in rabbinic Judaism, the Mashiach becomes a far off future, right? And then there's all sorts of stories that get embroidered around you know, the messianic times and what will the Messiah be like and um, et cetera, right? So yes, the Messiah is the future Davidic king in classical Jewish theology, which was emerges from the Bible, which was shaped by people from the Southern kingdom, right? The Northern kingdom, by the way, when the tribes split, right? So there are two kingdoms from 928 BCE till 721 BCE. Uh, 200 years until the Northern Kingdom was destroyed. The Northern Kingdom had a series of kings that were not necessarily dynastic. There would be an assassination 
by some general of the king. And then that general would be the king. And that general might have a son and a grandson who would be kings. And then they'd be assassinated by someone else, right? So there was kind of um, shifting, non-dynastic, non-familial kingship in the Northern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom, which was Judea, always saw this as bad and unstable and something worthy of criticism because they said, no, 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 we always have a dynasty from the house of David. So since the Northern tribes went away, were exiled, and it's the Southern kingdom that got to shape biblical literature, they were the final shapers of what we have, then part of the future destiny is there always needs to be a Davidic king. It's just part of the theology. The king is always from the house of David. By the way, in the Southern kingdom, if you read the book of Kings, sometimes they assassinated each other also, but the king always had to be from the Davidic household, sort of like some European, you know, histories, right? So there could be a, a, a Davidic claimant to the throne who would murder a different Davidic claimant to the throne, right? So it wasn't that they were assassination free in the Southern Kingdom, but the accepted ideology was, but there's got to be a king from this familial dynasty. So in the future, when kingship is restored, the anointed one of God, which means the king will be Davidic, which means the Mashiach will be Davidic in classical theology. That's how it all, Jeff, that's how it all gets there. Okay. Thank you for that perspective. Right. And the, the prophets aren't necessarily talking about the Messiah in the end of time. They just say, after God stops being angry and our punishment is over and our exile is over, there will be restoration and God will restore an anointed one, the anointed one, a righteous Davidic king. And then it gets amplified in, in ways in which we're familiar, both from Jewish um, ideology and Christian ideology. Other thoughts, thoughts, questions, comments. So we looked at the whole block. Barbara. Why, why do we only pray for Jerusalem and not for the whole of, of Israel? Um, well, I think Jerusalem, you, you know, Jerusalem was the capital. Right. It had the temple. It was destroyed. And like in the Bar Kokhba rebellion, it was plowed over and Jews were prevented by Roman law from living there as a part of breaking the Jewish spirit of rebellion, right? Like you people, you will never be back in your capital city, right? So, so just sort of imagine if I don't know, someone conquered the United States and as part of that conquest, they blew up all of the federal buildings in Washington, D.C., and then put barbed wire around all of Washington, D.C., and poisoned the soil, right? Jer Jerusalem was plowed with salt to make it uninhabitable. It was a Roman technique to make places uninhabitable. So it's the capital city. It's the seat of Davidic government. It's God's holy place that had God's holy temple. So um, it's seen by Jews as the symbol by the way, and, and when that happened, Jews still lived in other places in Judea. They lived five miles away from Jerusalem. They were allowed to live there by the Romans. Okay. So it is seen as the symbol of national um, independence. I think that's the, that's the simplest answer. 
symbol of national independence, and the temple was there, which is destroyed, and we're always pray, playing, praying for restoration of the temple. It's interesting that in these this series of brachot, in Ritzay, after Shomayat Filah, blessing number 17, we are going to get to the temple, but it is interesting that in this series of things, we're not talking about the temple at all. It's, it's implied, but notice even in the Jerusalem blessing, it does not say um, the temple, which is a little surprising, actually, if you look at it that way, because we're always praying for the restoration of the temple, you think it would be there. Right. But I think it's more than maybe it's more about national independence and autonomy. Right. Okay. And rebuilding Jerusalem is, is seen as um, as um, symbolic, repre- representative of that. I think that's my sort of my off the top of my head kind of answer. Thank you. Thoughts about this sequence. Ken Verrett. Just wanted to ask a question and I, I don't know if it's the, the right time now. I'm interested always about the, the history behind those prayers yes. and when and how and by whom. And so my question about the six that we just we were talking about, it seems that there is a flow yes. at least yeah. between the Malshinim and the Tzadikim. Yeah. yeah. And so were they written about the same time or um, so I'm going to leave that for next time, Vered. Okay. I mean, the the short answer is the Mishnah says, Mishnah year 200, 18 blessings. Actually quotes a rabbi quotes that says that Rabban Gamliel, who lived about the year 100, ordained the 18 blessings. It doesn't say what they are. The Talmud has a long list. It, where it actually enumerates the 18 in order. So that seems to suggest that by now, it, we, we can't say with assurance that the 18 that are enumerated in order in, ta- in the Talmud, which are the ones that we have, we actually have it actually has 19 because the Babylonian Talmud, they're the ones who added the one. We'll talk about that next week, right? It has ours in order and it says, you know, what, why this one, uh, you know, why 18? It's based on their various reasons, um, quotes various verses in the Bible, the various theories about why it's 18, because there are 18 bones in the spine, which I believe is not exactly biologically true, but 18 bones in the spine, because there are 18 times that Hashem's name is mentioned in Psalm 29. Because there are 18 other mentions other things where God's name is mentioned 18 times. And then the Babylonian Talmud has a long passage about it. I guess you can't where it clearly says our 19. So the Babylonian Talmud clearly knows our sequence of brachot. I guess you could say there's no proof that when the Mishnah says that Rabban Gamliel in the year 100 ordained and fixed the 18 blessings, there's no clear proof that the 18 that the Babylonian Talmud are listing are those 18. Dean, this thing. We sort of assume that, right? Meaning we, we don't have arguments about which are the 18, except for the 19th, which we'll get to, I promise, next week. But in general, we don't have someone who says, include a blessing for healing, and someone else who says, no, there's no blessing for healing. Instead, there's a blessing for Something else. Also, yeah. Right. So we sort of assume 
that the Talmud, which takes it for grant, which takes our blessings as our Amida for granted. Granted. So the year, I, I don't remember who says it in the Talmud. I have to go back and check. But let's just say Babylon uh, Talmud year 300, 400, 500. Okay. Uh, the Talmudic sages and final editing, maybe by around 600. <laughs> so in Babylonia, they list the 18 brachot. The Mishnah says, Rabban Gamliel in Eretz Yisrael in the year 100 ordained 18 brachot and fixed them. We assume that they're talking about the same 18. There's no text from Rabban Gamliel's time. There, there is no Mishnahic text which says, the, and these are the 18. But we kind of assume that the ones in the Babylonian Talmud are the ones that Rabban Gamliel ordained. It seems like a reasonable inference, right? And we assume, we'll look at the mission next week, we assume that Rabban Gamliel in the year 100 didn't say, hey guys, I have an idea. Let's invent a prayer called the Amidah and let's put 18 blessings in it. Rather, we assume that what it means is Rabban Gamliel, who was, he was the, the chief rabbi, we would call him, uh, was the Nasi, um, he sort of finalized and fixed the 18 blessings, which means that there were things floating around beforehand, which were maybe non-standardized, and Rabban Gamliel standardized them. So that doesn't mean that he or his generation invented 18 brachot where nothing had existed before. It means he was the standardizer, right? In the wake of the destruction of the temple, there was felt apparently a need to let us standardize the liturgy. And if you read Mishnah Brachot, you know, there are all kinds of things about standardization. What time do we say the Shema and which paragraphs are in the Shema? And is Mariv optional or required, right? So we, we clearly see in the generations, the early rabbinic generations after the destruction of the temple, attempts to standardize or fix the, the rudiments of the Siddur, right? When I will just say one Siddur. comment that the clarification, thank you. Yeah. It really, for me, that I'm linguistic looking at the words, it's just very interesting to see the vocabulary that belongs to this era yes. versus another, versus more advanced yes. times. Right. Right. And the rabbis are drawing on biblical Hebrew. Right. But they spoke rabbinic Hebrew, except mm-hmm. they didn't speak it. So even they the didn't speak it, but they used it. They correct. Knew even it. in the time of the Mishnah, the rabbis who wrote the Mishnah in Hebrew did not speak Hebrew as Hebrew. their everyday language. Right. Everyday language was Aramaic, but they had a version of Hebrew that is not identical with biblical Hebrew, like they don't say vayahi, you know, mm-hmm. they don't use words like that. In no, they don't. Hebrew. It's Hebrew they don't Hebrew. do, they don't use the reversing vowel. Correct. Almost, but, so they, so mm-hmm. they have, so they inherit uh, biblical Hebrew. Hebrew is no longer a spo- spoken language, day-to-day spoken language. And they, there is evolving, you know, they don't, I don't want to say they, they don't create rabbinic Hebrew because, again, language is evolutionary. It's like it's like saying Shakespeare didn't create Shakespearean English. He just spoke Shakespearean English or wrote Shakespearean English because that's what it was. And we didn't create the English of our day. We, you know, in an organic way, just kind of inherit and assimilate the English of our day. Right. So that's what the rabbis did, too. 
right? And their particular mm -hmm. dialect is called rabbinic Hebrew. Okay. Um, Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, I think we're, unless if there's a closing comment that someone has to say, that's great, Meyer, and then we're going to ring off. Meyer will give the final comment. And then next week, we are going to look back at the various alternative texts of the bad guys. We're going to look on the Mishnah and the Tosefta to try to get proof on which is the additional 19th blessing. We'll also get to Larry's question about, I looked back in the books and I couldn't find that Birkat Haminim is the 19th blessing. Where does that come from? The answer is it comes from the Talmud. So we're going to do all, we're going to do those passages next week. So next week we'll do screen share and I'll show a whole bunch of passages to sort out that whole question about which is the 19th blessing and the kind of two different points of view on that. Meyer. Two thoughts. One is, I think it's appropriate that we're discussing this right before Tisha B'Av. Um, Thank, Thank you. Yes. Um, so I think it's sort of an uh, interesting, uh, we might call it a coincidence, but it's either way, I appreciate the fact that uh, we're, we're focusing on the destruction of the temple. And the other part of that is at Samach David, I've always, I often think of that as us being the, so in a way that, you know, if you, um, um, and I think the, the salting of Yerushalayim is a wonderful image in the sense that you can see new sprouts coming forth despite everything that's done. And for me, I've always felt that that was, in a way, sort of a metaphor for the Jewish people. That is, many times as we've suffered destruction, um, and in this case, I guess, ultimately, it's a, we're talking about a national or peoplehood destruction, but either way, destruction of, you know, whether it be the temple or whether it be um, in Spain or whether it be the Holocaust, ultimately, there's new sprouts that come forward. And that, I figure, is a, kind of a nice way to leave this. Great. Thank you. We are, we could say um, it is part of our uh, cultural and spiritual DNA as the Jewish people is we know there, there is always hope and there will be regrowth. It's one thing of which right. we are certain there will be regrowth. Yes. Terry. From the sublime to the mundane unrelated do you happen to know when the term Yoreh applies? Is it after Tisha B'Av? Is, is it only during Tishrei? Yoreh, Yoreh meaning what? The first rain. It's oh, raining outside. Rain. Uh, as far as I know, it's like the rain in uh, Tishrei Cheshvan. Okay. But, but that is not, it's not mundane because it is symbolic. It is the rain which causes regrowth. So as we are here in the month of Av, may we all uh, uh, hope for, um, after we remember our time of destruction, always rebirth and uh, regrowth. And the one thing as Jews we know for certain is there will be a future. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.